Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, we're going to be in Judges 19 tonight, picking up where we left off last week. Uh, settle in, and if you uh, need to sit on your coats or something, I'm going to warn you early. We're going to knock off three chapters tonight, uh, and, and for those of you that are complete Bible geeks like me, this is good news. You didn't get all dressed up for nothing. Uh, so as we, we're going to do, the other reason we're doing three chapters tonight, these are really tough chapters. So we're picking up in Judges 19, and we'll be there uh, uh, tonight, for, we're going to get through all three chapters. Uh, this is the end of Judges, uh, and we have an answer for Sherry's question last week. How could they talk about the captivity in Babylon or being taken away to captivity if Samuel was the one that compiled Judges? Answer to that question comes from rabbinic tradition. For hundreds, or at this point, thousands of years, the Jews believe that Judges 1 through 16 was compiled by Samuel. 17 through 21 was added on after the captivity, which is why you see different references to they had no king in the land in these chapters and, and the one reference to the captivity that we saw in chapter 18 or 17, somewhere in there. Does that make sense? Uh, and tradition says Ezra is the one that added on the last five chapters. And the reason you add them on is you've got the, the Torah, the early histories, and then you've got the history of the kings. And and so you've got this gap of 350 years of the season or the era of the judges. When they go off to captivity, all the tribes put their scrolls together. So they get these stories from all the different 12 tribes, and then they gather them and put them and compile them. So then Ezra would see that and go, okay, here's these scrolls with these stories, but they're during the period of judges, which is why chronologically we see Phineas get mentioned here tonight. So 17 through 21 are considered these addendum pieces at the end of Judges. And at one point in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth was also part of the book of Judges for the same reason. But Ruth's been se separated off for the version of the Bible that we have. And I think in part that is that Ruth is kind of the shining light of hope. And if you take Ruth out, like thematically, Judges is not the shining light of hope book. It's the exact opposite. And we get to the end of Judges and the depths of depravity and sin tonight. So, I, so we get in there. And as we come into this, like for me at least, why do we have to read horrible stories like this in the Bible? And in part, I think God wants us to know that a world without God is not a good world. And that when God brings his law into the world and introduces it, it's a shining light for us. And if you love the law, part of loving the law is seeing what happens without it and not wanting that. So when nations tend to decline or fall away from the Lord, the people of God fall in love with the Lord. It's part of what brings us back to repentance. With that said, verse 1 says, And it came to pass in those days. The word and is a conjunction, which means this is kind of going forward from what we read last week. So it's part of the same narrative. All of this started, remember, with Micah building a little shrine in his house. And we'll just see that this explodes to affect the whole nation. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite 
staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah. As you know, we have a few things wrong with this sentence. If you know the law, you recognize and can discern this isn't, something's wrong here. Um, there was no king in Israel, tells us kind of the context again. That theme keeps coming up. And there's a bridge here that's going on between this period of Joshua where he shows him how to do it and then Samuel bringing Saul and David into the kingship. Uh, Intel of the day of captivity in the land is down in, was back in 18 verses 30. And then we get that situation where we have the chapters uh, 17 through 21 being these addendum pieces. The certain Levite is unnamed. In chapter 17, 8, there was also a certain Levite that was unnamed. So the name of the person isn't important. In fact, it's kind of generalized because this is just the idea of this is what it was like in Israel. Um, and this is really soon after Joshua, too. It, that same certain Levite back in chapter 17 is also in the mountains of Ephraim, uh, which is Benjamin territory. Very similar, a lot like the 1100 silver being with a certain woman being similar to the 1100 that Delilah was offered. There's lots of things in the Bible like this where the point isn't why those things are there, but there's clearly connections that are made. Uh, so a concubine is a weird situation in ancient Israel. It's not God's plan. God planned for husbands and wives. A concubine is like somebody who has sex with a guy and he provides her food. So it's kind of a... a to be blunt, it's kind of a financial arrangement. It's like a professional, single-man prostitute kind of situation. So it's not a good thing, and it's a Levite. So this is a priest doing this kind of stuff. A bishop should be blameless, according to 1 Timothy 3.2. A husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, which means they know how to cook barbecue, and they're apt to teach. So if that's not the case, then this person shouldn't be in any kind of spiritual leadership position because they're, at least according to Timothy, they're not qualified if they don't know how to have a healthy relationship with somebody. They shouldn't be teaching other people if that's not the case. But his concubine, verse 2, played the harlot against him, which means she's out having sex with other guys, and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and, there, and was there for four whole months. So to play a harlot is to go off with somebody who's not your spouse for money. Uh, and going home to dad seems like an odd situation to be playing a harlot. So this is an odd use of the word. Is it that she just left this guy because he was a scumbag? Because when you run home to your family, that's not exactly off being a harlot in, in the traditional sense, right? And she's with her dad for, for four whole months, probably not playing the harlot while she lives with her family. So there's an odd situation here that doesn't get fully explained to us, um, but the rest of the story will show us the depths of, of sickness that her husband has, right? Then her husband arose and went after her, like he's on the hunt, to speak kindly to her and bring her back. If he has to speak kindly to her, it means that he wasn't speaking kindly to her before. So he's trying to win her back. Having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him, two donkeys so that she can ride one back and he can ride one back. So she brought him into her father's house. And when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. Which means that this guy married her and didn't meet the dad ahead of time. You can see what's going on. Like, this is all kind of not right. 
Now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him, and he stayed with them three days. So they ate, and they drank, and they lodged there. Drinking being the key, I think, is that her, her husband and her dad become kind of drinking buddies. And, but she brought him in, which implies that there's at least a level of amiability that wasn't there before, right? So something went, went good, and the dad's happy to see him. Maybe the dad's thinking that he's going to have a daughter back home in disgrace, and if he can get the husband to make okay with the daughter, then there won't be as much disgrace on the family of what's going on here. Um, or, or likely he wants what's best for his daughter, and that would be to be in a, in a healthy house. Then it came to pass on the fourth day that they arose early in the morning, and he stood to depart, but the young woman's father said to the son-in-law, Hey, refresh your heart with a morsel of bread, and afterwards go your way. Have some breakfast. Why don't you just stay and relax? So they sat down in verse 6, and the two of them ate, and they drank together. And then the young woman's father said to the man, Please be content to stay all night and let your heart be merry. The heart be merry there has a strong connotation of being imbibed with drink that would make your heart be merry. So they're, and, and the verse prior says they're drinking too. So the indication here is that the dad and the husband are just drinking a lot. Uh, and when they, the men stood to depart, his father-in-law urged him, so he lodged there again. And they there rose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart, but the young woman's father said, refresh your heart. So they delayed till afternoon, and they both ate. You ever tried to say goodbye like this, and you keep saying goodbye, but you keep talking some more? And so the husband and the dad really hit it off. And when the man stood to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father said to him, Look, the day's now drawing towards evening. Why don't you spend the night? The days, see the days coming to an end. Lodge here that your heart might be merry. Like, have another night of drink with me. So tomorrow go, very, we'll, we'll, tomorrow go your way early so that you can get home. However, the man was not willing to spend the night, so he rose and departed and came opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. With him were two saddled donkeys. His concubine was also with him. So the dad makes three attempts to get him to hang around a little longer. Why don't you stay here, have fun, we'll get to know each other, um, and they become good friends. Uh, Judges 3, uh, ch- chapter 3, verse 5, mentions the Jebusites are one of the groups that were not driven out uh, by, the, by the Israelites. They should have driven out. But this is a city that's on a hill. It's extremely defensible, and it still is today. Um, but point being, we get the beginning of Judges and the end of Judges the way God put this whole thing together, kind of bookend each other. We got this reference to Jerusalem. So they're near Jebus, verse 11, and the day was far spent, and the servant said to his master, come, please, let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. But his master says to him, we will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners who are not the children of Israel. We will go to Gibeah. This is an important point in the story. They're not going to go hang out with the Canaanites because the Canaanites are supposedly evil, right? So they're going to go to an Israelite city. Not only that, Gibeah is a larger Israelite city where there should be good people living under God's law. And if you know this chapter, you know that's not how this is going to turn out. Because the point of Judges is that Israel deserved what they got. So we get to there. Verse 13. So he said to his servant, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or in Ramah. And they passed by, they passed by Jerusalem. And they went on their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there to go and lodge in Gibeah. And when he went in, he sat down in the open square of the city, for no one would take them into his house to spend the night. So low-level sin, 
according to Israelite law, they are supposed to, Leviticus 19.34, if a stranger that dwells with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and you shall love them as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. Not only are you supposed to be hospitable, you're supposed to treat them like you'd treat yourself, because God, and that's the reason why you do it. You were strangers, and God gave you a house, so you give strangers a house too. So massive sin on the part of this city in that no one will take them into their house, every single one of them should have been willing to take th this, this group into their house. So, and, and, and this had to be, you know, he sits down in the city gate there. The, the tone is that there's a little bit of frustration here and that they're just kind of, they sink down because they're tired. They shouldn't have left so late in the day. Maybe should have skipped the sausage egg McMuffins with father-in-law, but they didn't. Here's a key too. <laughs> Gibeah should be not only safer, but it should be more hospitable than the Canaanite city. Allah, this, and, and, and an interesting connection, this is also the town that Saul comes from, the first king. So if you think there's, you know, Saul had great heritage, he didn't. His heritage is the city of Gibeah, which is going to go down in history as one of the most horrible situations ever. So they find that they're shunned, there's no room in the inn. So they get stuck and sitting in the square. But just then, an old man came in from his work in the field in the evening who was also from the mountains of Ephraim. So a non-Gibeonite shows up, and he's got a place that he's renting because he seems to be doing some seasonal work working in the fields. So a, another mountains of Ephraim person finds these people in the square. He was staying in Gibeah where the men of the place were Benjaminites. And when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? So he said to him, we're passing from Bethlehem and Judah towards the remote mountains of Ephraim. I'm from there. And I went to Bethlehem and Judah. And now I'm going to the house of the Lord. Um, but there's no one who will take me into his house, although we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys. In other words, nobody has to pay a penny. We got food. We got everything. We just need a place to lay down. And the bread and wine for themselves. They even have their own food. For your female servant and for the young man who is with your servant, there is no lack of anything. So they meet this old guy. He's wondering what they're doing. Uh, ben Benjamin and Judah. Uh, and then he's going to the house of the Lord. This is a, a familiar trip. The house of the Lord would be in Shiloh at this time. So he's moving in that direction. So he meets somebody else. They don't take him in. Verse 20. I'm not doing a lot of commentary because the story kind of speaks for itself. So I'll do more commentary when we get towards the end here. And the old man said, peace be with you, however, let all your needs be my responsibility. Don't spend the night in the open square. So he brought him into his house, gave him fodder for the donkeys. They washed their feet and they ate and they drank. So the old man gives the hospitality and non-Gibeonite gives the hospitality that the Gibeonites should have given. So at least there's one person here willing to do this. But we're going to find out even that one person's kind of a scumbag. So, um, so they do that. I think the guy, the old man, recognized the danger. If you're out in this square, you're going to be dead by morning. And every, like, we think this is just ancient world stuff. There are neighborhoods in the Twin Cities that if you're sleeping out in the open, you may not make it in the morning. In fact, every major metro area in the United States has neighborhoods like this, where if somebody sees you, you're like, what are you doing out here? You need to, this isn't safe for you. Uh, and, and so there's that kind of tone, I think, or overtone with the old man. Um, verse 22, so as they were enjoying themselves, clearly this Levite likes to enjoy himself with strange people that he meets. Suddenly, certain men of the city, perverted men, 
um, surrounded the house and they beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, bring out the man who came to your house that we might know him carnally. This is R-rated tonight. I should have told you that at the beginning. Um, the beating on the door suggests that this is an assault or attack. It's like robbers coming to your house in the middle of the night. Only they yell out, and they're like, we just want the guy you took in. So they would have seen him in the square and maybe had plans for him. So they watched where he went, and they followed him to this house. To know him carnally means exactly what you think it means. Uh, they want to they have their way with this guy. But the man, the master of the house, went out to them, and he said, No, my brethren, I beg you, don't do so wickedly. Seeing this man has come into my house, don't commit this outrage. There's a law of hospitality here. What are you doing? So the outrage that the guy has isn't about the rape. His outrage is that his honor is going to get hurt if this happens, right? So there's an odd morality at work that has nothing to do with the law of God. And this, by the way, this same story played out almost identically back in Genesis 19.5. Uh, same words, same parallel, only that was Canaanites doing it. This is Israelites doing the same thing that was done to them back in Genesis, right? They haven't learned. And that's kind of the point of Judges. Uh, Genesis 19.5, they called unto Lot and said to him, where are the men which came into you this night? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. I mean, it's almost word for word what's going on here. The only difference is that now Israelites are the, are the people that are in danger of God's wrath. Um, the perverted men there, this is interesting. In the Hebrew, that actually means sons of Belial. Uh, not, as a whole, not as a proper noun, Belial, but worthless, wicked, ruined men. These are a gang of thugs that are absolutely given over to the lowest moral character, sons of Belial. Verse 24, this is the guy's solution. Like, think, like, don't miss what breaks down here. Look, here's my virgin daughter. A virgin daughter in the Hebrew world would have been 13, 14 years old, right? And we're not talking about a grown woman, right? We're talking about a very young lady. Here's my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out now, humble them and do as you please, but to this man, don't do any vile thing. This is cringeworthy, right? Um, already the man's concubine, he's willing to break his rule of hospitality with the woman, but don't touch the man. But of course, with women, the hospitality rule doesn't count. This is not God's law. We read through God's law and it was beautiful. It had a high regard and respect for both genders. This kind of sexism is something that comes out in the world because the world divides people into different groups, right? And these kind of these horrible things start to happen. Godless paganism was entirely sexist, right? Entirely dominant. And we start to see the Israelites start to act like that instead of raising themselves up to the standards God gave them, where, where there was a love and respect. See the Song of Solomon as to what that love should look like. When there's no law of God, the weak get thrown out the door while the strong stay inside. The cowards survive while the weak get abused. That's what a world without God looks like. This is why I love God's law. In God's law, everyone has dignity and honor and rights. doesn't matter how strong you are. So the old man um, and, the, and, and the guy are maybe even more guilty than the rapist. Like, it's bad to be a rapist, but here's these, this Levite throwing out 
the concubine instead of taking that abuse himself. There's no self-sacrifice, right? In the Bible, a guy's supposed to be willing to give his life for his wife. This guy's not doing that, which makes me wonder why she left him in the first place, right? He's willing to throw her out to the mob. So she she had to know before, this is not a guy that has any honor or regard for her. Verse 25, but the men who would not, would not heed him, so the men took his concubine and brought her out to them, and they knew her, and they abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. So much for a husband sacrificing his life as Christ sacrificed himself for the church. To know her is to have sex. That's Old Testament for sex. To know her and abuse her are two different things. Again, this is R-rated. The Hebrew for abuse is to insert or thrust things upon someone. So they knew her sexually, and then they thrust things upon her and abused her in ways that are absolutely horrendous. Then the, men, the women came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Uh, the word fall down there is Nepal. It is to fall as in battle, right? You just struggle along, and then you run out of blood and fall because you're, you're exhausted due to lack of blood. She's broken then in a few different ways. She's not just physically broken. After all of this abuse, she crawls back to the house and falls at the doorstep without anyone answering the door. She's just broken emotionally, physically, spiritually. She's completely abandoned to the world, and no one's there to save her. And you got to think like, as you get to the end of Judges, this is the deepest kind of evil. It's wrong. She's abandoned, beaten, alone. There's no mercy. There's no savior. And she crawls to where she should have refuge and the door's shut. What's this guy sleeping? Sleeping while this is happening to his wife? He's not getting a posse together and grabbing a baseball bat and seeing what he can do? Who would do this ever? And sometimes we take for granted when Christ is in our life, these things become unimaginable to us because we don't even want to imagine these things. But it's not unimaginable to the world without God. A world without God, this stuff happens all the time. At the pastor's conference, we saw that story about the mom from uh, Afghanistan with her four-year-old daughter and her, her 12-year-old daughter who got, to, who got to watch both of them get raped in front of them by these thugs. This happens today in our world in godless parts of the world. And it's evil and it's wrong. And this is the point of Judges. Chapter 17, verse 6. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And this is the end result of that. If everybody does whatever they want, this is, there's going to be people that want to do these things. So you can make a society where evil is permissible, but all you're doing is giving more and more ground to that kind of nastiness in your culture. So this is a pinnacle moment. Hosea 9.9, Hosea 10.9, they use this story as an example of what was wrong with Israel, is that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. These are Israelites doing this. These are not Canaanites. When her master arose in the morning, again, he's sleeping. Like, I just can't even believe this, right? Verse 27, he arose in the morning, which implies he was, he was laying down. He was sleeping. And he opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way. There was his concubine, fallen at the door. Here fallen is in the past tense. She's dead. 
So she was alive and then got and scraped the threshold and had no one answer the door. It's just the image is horrid. She's fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let's go. But there is no answer. This guy's cold. Made me think of Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with them and he with me. It's not an obvious parallel. But in God's world, when we get to the door and knock with the last of our strength, God opens the door and says, come in and have refuge, and you can come here, and I'll take care of your wounds, and I'll heal you up, and I'll help you get strong again. So God welcomes the broken, and he takes them in. But not in Israel. They don't even care about the broken or the weak. It doesn't matter to them. So the man lifted her onto a donkey, and the man got up and went to his place. And when he entered the house, he took a knife. He laid hold of his concubine and divided her into 12 pieces, limb by limb. And then he sent her, her pieces, throughout all the territory of Israel. And so it was that all who saw it said, No such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. The instruction from God, the instruction that went out with these pieces, we need to, as painful as it is, consider what the world looks like without God. Absorb it. It's healthy for us as mature believers to think upon these things and know what we are against, right? And they've gotten worse since they get out of Egypt, not better, according to this story. I'm so glad we get to Ruth next week. This is why I only wanted to do this one week. I didn't want to have to review this story two weeks in a row. Consider it, confer, talk with one another, and speak up. At some point, the people of God have to recognize evil and say, no, we're not doing that. We don't care what the people say or what mobs are out there. We would rather die than live in this kind of world. And that's when the people of God start saying no to tyrants. We won't be bullied anymore. If you want to take my lunch money, you can take it. If you need to beat me, beat me. But no, I won't volunteer to be part of this world of hate and brutality and evil. So Israel falls to evil. They have no king. They do what's right in their own eyes. And they, have, if we, they do what's right in their own eyes. That means everybody does what's right in their eyes. So you either repent of that or you bewail the injustice for the rest of your days because the injustice is coming because you're not willing to stand for what's right. The story goes on in chapter 20. So all the children of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, as well as the land of Gilead. And the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord in Mitzpah. So in the book of Judges, the entire nation has never come together. So this is the first time this happens really since Joshua. And they're willing to deal with this sin in unity, but they're going to make a bunch of mistakes in how they do it. Because instead of consulting with the Lord, they just react in their rage. And this is the downside. Godly people can start to fight evil, but we do it just out of a sense of rage and anger. And then we're doing exactly what Satan wants us to do. So it might in fact be unjust, but if we don't follow the Lord's will, then we become the injustice we're trying to fight. Verse 2, the leaders of all the people and all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers, soldiers, largest army we've seen so far in the Bible, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone up to Mitzpah. 
And the children of Israel said, tell us, how did this wicked deed happen? So they're following the law here. If something bad happens, Deuteronomy 13, 14, the leaders should inquire, make a search, ask diligently, and behold what is the truth. And if the thing is certain that the abomination wrought is among you, they're supposed to do something about it. So they're actually inquiring of the tribe of Benjamin, what happened here? You know, we got a body part in the mail. Um, Amazon dropped it off, and we wondered, well, you know, who would send that? So we're here to inquire what's going on with this. So Benjamin uh, doesn't come. They don't react. Um, the Levite steps up to, to state his own case. He's the guy that sent it out. So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, my concubine and I went into Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, and spend the night, to spend the night. And the men of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. And they intended to kill me, but instead they ravaged my concubine so that she died. He's skipping some details from that story, right? Just a couple. It's all about him. So I took hold of my concubine and I cut her to pieces and I sent her throughout all the territory of the inheritance of Israel because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. Look, all of you are children of Israel. Give your advice and counsel here and now. Whose advice and counsel is Israel supposed to follow? This is part of where, they're, again, they just keep doing the wrong thing. They're doing everything that's right in their own eyes. So all the people arose as one man saying, none of us will go to his tent, nor will any turn back to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. We will take 10 men out of every 100 throughout all the tribes of Israel, 100 out of every 1,000, 1,000 out of every 10,000 to make provisions for the people that when they come to Gibeah and Benjamin that they may repay all the violence that they have done in Israel. So all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united together as one man. They're mimicking what Joshua had them do. So they've done this kind of thing before as they go out to war, but they're not consulting the Lord. And they're making vows. This is what we're going to do. And later on, we'll see they made other vows at this point in time too. Uh, but they're, make, they're all angry and they're enraged. And we're going to do this and so help me. We're going to do this and that and this. And they're making all these grand pronouncements, declaring what the right thing is, because clearly that was unjust. But they're getting half a story to make these proclamations. So another step towards God's law in such a way that they're misusing God's word and they're not really following it to the T, right? Um, the harsher punishment for the Israelites here is that they're going to kill everybody. With the Canaanites, they just drove them out and destroyed the idols, remember? But with the Israelites, when they're killing their own, it's going to be a much harsher consequence because it's coming out of anger, not out of civic and political exercise of power, right? So they're coming out of this place of rage. Verse 12, then the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin saying, what is this wickedness that occurred among you? Now therefore deliver up the men, the perverted men who are in Gibeah that we may put to death and remove the evil from Israel. This is their attempt to just deal with the criminals. But look at what Benjamin does. But the children of Benjamin wouldn't listen to the voice of their brothers, the children of Israel. So in protecting the vile, wicked people, they become culpable in whatever their crimes are. When a nation protects its criminals above the righteous people, they're guilty of what those criminals are doing. They own that sin. So instead, the children of Benjamin, verse 14, gather together from their cities, and they get up and get ready for battle against the children of Israel. 
So now we got Israelites fighting each other. This wasn't God's plan at all. It's all falling apart. All of this because Micah set up a shrine in his house, right? This is all escalation from personal intimate sin of one guy. And maybe even the same Levite, we don't know. And from their cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who numbered 700 select men. Among all this, so we have 26,700 men against 400,000 men. You got the odds? Among all this, and this is what evens the odds, among all of this people were 700 select men who were left-handed, the heroes of the left hand. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. Okay, in all of world history, whoever has the best ranged artillery wins. Like they used to say, you know, whoever's going to win in Europe is whoever has the most Welsh archers hired to fight with them. If you have good ranged artillery, those 700 people can wave after wave be taken down people before you can get access to melee combat. That's a little geekdom for you tonight, but we'll go on with the story. This levels the playing field, these 700 slingers. And it's a nice prop for the left-handed people of the world like my wife. Now, Benjamin. Now, besides Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. So really, this, this fighting, this civil war that we have is its own tragedy. Um, the idea that they don't miss. <laughs> Interestingly, the Hebrew word there is hatah, which means to sin. So those slingers would never miss the mark. They don't sin. They don't miss the mark. And the word sin is actually to miss the mark, that there's some goal or target that you miss. So here it's used in the literal sense. They literally did not miss the mark or did not sin. So we have verse 18. Then the children of Israel arose, and they went up to the house of God to inquire of God. And they said, which of us shall go first up to battle against the children of Benjamin? What should they be asking at the house of God? Should we go to battle? They're not asking God if they should go to battle or not. So I like this. The Lord said, Judah first. You're not asking me if you should do this or not. So if you're going to do it, I've already told you Judah goes first. So do what I've said. And, and the Lord just says that. You ever pray, have people that pray like that? Lord, I'm going to do this thing. Be with me when I do this thing. The Lord's like, all right. You know, you're not asking me for it. So like a gentleman, God doesn't push his opinion. So they're not asking if they should even be in this, fulfilling these ridiculous vows. They, they could just go after that group of guys that did the raid and make an example of them. But they're going to go after the entire tribe of Benjamin as they have now accepted culpability by protecting them. So, verse 19, the children of Israel rose in the morning and camped against Gibeah, and the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin, and the men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against them at Gibeah. Um, so the, then the children of Benjamin came out of Gibeah, and on that day they cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites. 700 slingers will make a difference. That's 700 rocks flying through the air every few seconds. And the people, that is the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and again formed the battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. So they get slaughtered the first round of this battle, but they encourage themselves. We can do it. We got 400,000 men. And they don't realize that the tide has flipped. Like usually God wins these outnumbered victories. But here they are thinking they're doing stuff in the name of the Lord, and they are getting cut down. Then the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening. 
Lord, why did you do this thing to us? Why have we had so many issues? Well, you're marching forward and I didn't tell you to. That's why you're having all these issues. They asked counsel of the Lord saying, shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord says, go up against him. Sure, why not? Again, the Lord never promises them victory. So in the past, when the Lord says, go do this, he says, I will be with you and you will not fail. He says those kinds of things to Joshua. Here, there's no promise of victory. That should have been a red flag. Sure, you want to go fight them? Go fight them. Do it. You know, you guys are, I don't even have to exact punishment on Israel for you to do this because you're doing it to yourselves. So remember in chapter 18, the priest would mediate for Israel between God and Israel. But when they go up to God and they're just doing this on their own, they're not going through Shiloh and through the proper channels. There's no mediation. At this point in time, Phineas is the high priest. He's not mentioned. So they're asking things of God and getting answers, but they're not doing it the way God told them to. It makes you question if this is even the Lord talking to them. Yes? And they keep having negative results, which says how easy it is for God's people to forget that when we put our own will into our prayers, we often hear exactly what we want to. It's called vanity. But when we truly seek the Lord, we get our own decision and we kill it. I don't care if I go this way or this way, Lord. I'll go whichever way you want me to go. But they're not doing that. They've made vows and they encourage themselves, verse 22. This is the height of arrogance and they are paying the price for it. Verse 24. So the children of Israel approached the children of Benjamin on the second day. Benjamin went out against them from Gibeon the second day and cut down to the ground 18,000 more of the children of Israel. All of these drew the sword. They, they're cutting down soldiers. They're not just cutting down average willy-nilly people. So verse 26, Then all the children of Israel, that is all the people, went up and came to the house of God and they wept. And they sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and they offered burnt offerings and a peace offering before the Lord. This sounds more like it right? Actually off, making the offerings they were supposed to make before fasting, giving something up. So this time they're going up to that house of the Lord. This is where the ark is at. This is where the tabernacle's at. Verse 27, so the children of Israel inquired of the Lord, and then they comment, the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days saying, shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? Now they're asking an open-ended question. Should I or shouldn't I? Because they keep getting slaughtered. So they keep getting better and better at prayer. The more God just lifts his hand and lets them do what they want. And the Lord says, go up, and now he says, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. This is the first time God makes that promise. Phineas is the grandson of Aaron. That shows us that we're early in the period of Judges, that this story got added on. Um, God uses this situation a lot like he used the situation with Samson. All this stuff is going on where people are beating each other up, and the judgment of God is just God taking his hands off the situation. It's not that God's actively doing anything here. He just stands back. But he promises victory this time. In, I also want you to notice about these three battles the first time they go to Elohim in verse 18, that's an impersonal reference to God in general. The second time, verse 23, they go to Jehovah. The name Yahweh is in, in there. 
the covenant God that they have as Israel, and they're doing it, they're going to Jehovah, but they're going the wrong way. The third time, verse 28, they're going through Phineas and talking to the Lord God Jehovah. They're doing it the way God has asked them to mediate, have the high priest mediate for them. So they're actually getting, they know the right thing to do, but they need to experience some hardship before they actually do it the way God asks them to do it. It's kind of interesting. So thousands of people have to die for all this to happen, uh, and, but this time they follow legalistic. How narrow, how, how, how Leviticus-like, how mosaic leadership of them, that there's this way they have to do it. It's not narrow or legalistic. It's just what God said. So if God says to do it that way, it's not legalistic for us to do it that way. It's obedient for us to do it that way, to do it God's way. And God's way is higher than ours ways, and, and, and it's the way they should have done it. So now they have this different approach. Verse 29, then Israel set men in ambush all around Gibeah. Notice they change their tactic. They don't just stand up like dorks and get hit by slings. They actually hide. <laughs> that makes you harder to hit. And the children of Israel went up against the children of Benjamin on the third day and put themselves in battle array against Gibeah as at the other times. So the children of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. This looks a lot like Joshua 7 and 8. They began to strike down and kill some of the people as at the other times in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. And in the field, about 30 men die. And, at, and the children of Benjamin said, they are defeated before us at first. But the children of Israel said, let us flee and draw away from the city to the highways. So Israelites run away. The Benjamins, Benjaminites give chase. But when they give chase, they leave the city, which their slingers had cover. So now those nice left-handed slingers are out in the open. This is brilliant battle strategy. Um, and, and they're using their heads. Um, as they get exposed, they become vulnerable to those people that were hiding out. So all the men of Israel rose from their place and put themselves in battle array at Baal Tamar. Then Israel's men in ambush burst forth from their position in the plain of Geba. And 10,000 select men from all Israel came in against Gibeah and the battle was fierce. But the Benjaminites didn't know that the disaster was upon them. They're out chasing the other group. Do you get this mentally, what's going on here? So they're given chase and while they give chase, they... The Lord defeats Benjamin before Israel, and the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjaminites, all of which drew the sword. So they look around, and the city that was giving them shelter has now been destroyed. And then they start chasing them down left and right. That's the summary of the battle. The next passage is the detail of how that battle happens. So verse 36, so the children of Benjamin saw that they were defeated and the men of Israel gave ground to the Benjamites because they relied on the men in ambush who had set them against Gibeah, whom they had set against Gibeah. And the men in ambush quickly rushed upon Gibeah and the men in ambush spread out and struck the whole city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise from the city whereupon the men of Israel would turn in battle. And now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. Again, this is the more detailed account of the battle. For they said, surely they're defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them and there was a whole city going in smoke to heaven. And when the Israel men, men of Israel turned back, the men of Benjamin panicked because they saw that disaster was come upon them. They had people behind them and in front of them. They were trapped. 
Therefore, they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them, and whoever came out of the cities, they destroyed in their midst. They surrounded the Benjaminites. They chased them. They easily trampled them down as far as the front of Gibeah toward the east, and 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All of these were men of valor, and they turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon, and they cut down 5,000 of them on the highways. So that's now 5,000 plus 18,000, 23,000. That's almost their entire army is gone. Then they pursued them, and this is, I think, where Israel starts falling into sin. They pursued them, pursued them relentlessly up to get them. This is anger. This isn't the, the calm, rational thinking Israel. This is not the Israel of Joshua. This is the Israel of, a, uh, of, of sin. And killed 2,000 of them. So all who fell of Benjamin that day was 25,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of valor. That leaves, from our original count, 600 men left. So of all the tribe of Benjamin that were fighting aged, only 600, 600 of them are alive. But 600 men turned and fled to the wilderness to the Rock of Rimmon. These are the ones that got away. And they stayed at the Rock of Rimmon for four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword. Every city, men and beasts, all who were found, and they set fire to all the cities they came to. This is the judgment they were supposed to give to Canaanites. But they give it to Israelites. Was Benjamin guilty? Yes. Is this the right judgment for them? They never consulted God over it. The slaughter here is absolute overkill that never got fully executed on the Canaanites. Right? So this is, this is a kind of murder that isn't part of how God had them doing it. They keep killing even after they're victorious. Israel's going to regret this really soon as God didn't tell them to do it. Uh, note and remember, this is all an escalation from this situation with the woman and the situation with Micah and people setting up their own religions. A soft answer turns away rash, wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger, Proverbs 15.1. All they're doing here is stirring up their anger. Y'all good? Y'all still with me for this last chapter? Okay, it's the same story. Do we need to take a break, do some jumping jacks? We're good? All right. Now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mitzpah. So this is going back to when they were all angry and mad about what had happened when they're at Mitzpah. None of us shall give a daughter to a Benjamin as a wife. So why would they make this vow? In fact, the, the, what we've read in the law is don't make foolish vows. We got examples of it with Jephthah. You know, but you're not supposed to, but their vow is we're not going to give any of our daughters to these men. Well, they killed all the men. There's only the 600 left. And then they slaughtered all the women, children, beasts, and cities around them. So they got 600 alive Benjaminites with no women to marry because they've made a vow that they're not going to give their daughters to marry these Benjaminites. What's going to happen is, well, at least according to how biology works, there won't be Benjaminites when those 600 men die if they all keep this ridiculous vow. So they're about to wipe out one of the tribes of Israel. That's not God's plan. So, but this is where we are. Then the people came to the house of God and remained there before God till evening. They lifted up their voices and they wept bitterly. In other words, they're angry at God for all oh, this horrible situation. But who made it happen? So many people, I think, get, get angry at God for situations they've created that God never sent them into. And they said, O Lord, God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel? 
oh Lord. I, you know, you wonder if the Lord is brokenhearted about this, if he gets frustrated about this, or if he just shakes his head going, humans. You know, and just wonders, like, who are these people? I think biblically he's brokenhearted about this, by the way. But for my image of God, I imagine him just shaking his head going, you guys are nuts. So it was on the next morning that the people rose early and they built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. They're not supposed to build altars anywhere but the tabernacle or God has consecrated the ground himself where there's a Christophany. But they're building altars because they just are going to do whatever they want to do. And the Levite leading the tribe of Dan, you know, he's making up his own religion. So the children of Israel, verse 5, said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up with the assembly to the Lord? You mean the illegal assembly that's to execute your own people? Whoever didn't go to that assembly might be the remnant of people doing what God commanded. So suddenly all this culture of evil is going to turn on the good people and attack them because they weren't on board with this godless plan in the first place. Does this, is this just nuts upon nuts? So who are the people that weren't with us? For they've made a great oath concerning anyone that had not come up to the Lord at Mitzvah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. Another stupid vow. And the children of Israel grieved for Benjamin, their brother, and they said, one tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives for those who remain, seeing that we've sworn by the Lord that we won't give our daughters as wives? So this is a problem they could solve themselves, right? I remember there was one time, well, some of you might remember this. We had one nameless people that came, and they had someone that they knew that had need, right? And they came to us and said, well, these people really have need. You guys should take care of them. But they didn't bother to volunteer any help or any ability. They could fix this problem by going to this vow and calling it what it is, which is ridiculous. But instead of fixing the problem themselves, they're going to get other people to fix their problem. It's a really odd thing, but we humans, we do this. Here's a problem. You should fix it. Try being in leadership or management ever. Luckily, I'm not anymore. But it was one of my least favorite things when people could come into the door with a problem that they could fix. We'll just fix it. Anyways, I won't go too far down that path. All of this, remember, is being done in God's name. They're holding forth a form of godliness, but they deny the power of God. Avoid these people, 2 Timothy 3.5. So there, there's a lot going on here. There's pride. We did really good by doing what we did. Then they compare it people. Well, who are the people that didn't do the good that we did? And then they judge people. Those people should be put to death because they didn't do what we did. And then they sin. Let's go and execute them and, 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 and do this horrible thing where they just slaughter innocent people now. Or they could serve God and just pray for other people and ask for God to intervene. I thank God who I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers day and night, 2 Timothy 1.3. You can guess where I'm at in my Bible study right now, 2 Timothy. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. This is the theme of Judges, see verse 25. And they said, what, is, what, is, what one is there from the tribes of Israel who do not come up to Mizpah to the, to the Lord? And in fact, no one had come up from the camp of Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were counted, indeed not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent out 12,000 of their most valiant men 
and commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, including the women and children. They slaughter the whole town. And we spent some time thinking about just one woman dying at the threshold. Here's a whole city of people that said, I'm not going to kill another Israelite. and I'm not going up to this council of rage. And they get slaughtered for taking that stand and not participating with what their nation was up to. And this is the thing you shall do, verse 11. You shall utterly destroy every male and every woman who's known a man intimately. That leaves only one group of people, the young ladies who have not had sex yet. So we're in our first historic instance of sex trafficking. I, I don't know how else to frame this. They're slaughtering everybody and they're taking little girls. This is the kind of men the Israelites have become, and it's sick. Their solution is instead of giving their own daughters, they're going to abduct other people's daughters and let them marry the Benjaminites. So they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man intimately. They brought them to the camp of Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. They abduct the young girls. And then the whole congregation sent word to the children of Benjamin who were at the rock of Rimmon and announced peace to them. We're not going to kill you. We don't want to destroy that last tribe of Israel. So Benjamin came back at that time and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead. And yet they had found they had not found enough for them. So if you got the numbers, there's 600 Benjaminite men, there's 400 young girls that just got married to them. That leaves 200 men without wives. Even as Benjamin repopulates, imagine the large-scale psychological damage. You think people coming back from Vietnam had some troubles? Imagine the messed-up marriages that exist in Benjamin at this time. right? The, this tribe. Of, of guys marrying girls half their age who've been abducted and watched their families get killed in front of them. These are not healthy families. These are not kids being raised in a godly way at all. So this is kind of the sin of imposition. We think we know what's right for the world, so we're going to demand it on people. It's like the ring of power got captured by the wrong person. And the people grieved from Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. Did the Lord make this vibe? This, I'm sorry, not this, this void, this vibe. The Lord didn't do this. They're breaking God's law and then blaming God for what happens as a result. We read this as a Jewish nation has read this for thousands of years. The, the conclusive interpretation of these chapters is this is an example of why Israel deserved what they got. The whole nation is culpable, not just a couple people here and there the nation of Israel had to go off to Babylon. They had to take some discipline from God to change this thing. So it's all a pro progression that builds up. And then the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for wives of those who remain since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed? You think this is as bad as it gets, but it's not. Don't worry, it gets worse. And this has kind of been the book of Judges. And Katie likes that line. It just, it gets worse. So first they went after these outsiders that didn't join them. Now listen to what they do. It's verse 17. And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin. So that condition statement is not truth. There doesn't have to be wives for these 200 men. But they make this little rule for themselves that it has to be this way. It's the way we've always done it that a tribe may not be destroyed from Israel. However, we can't give them wives from our daughters, 
For the children of Israel have sworn an oath saying, cursed be the one who gives a wife to Benjamin. Okay, again, they're just, they got their own set of rules at this point. They could have just not killed all the Benjaminite women. That would have fixed the problem. They could have given their own daughters. That would have fixed the problem with a little sacrifice from them. But no, they're, they're going to abduct and make the problem even worse. Then they said, verse 19, in fact, there's a yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh. Shiloh's where the tabernacle of the Lord is. Guess who's hanging out at the tabernacle of the Lord? All these women that have committed their lives to prayer. Remember, we've had a couple of these women that dedicated themselves to praying in front of the tabernacle, and they don't get married. They just give themselves to the Lord. They're like little future nuns, right? So they're going to go after these women next. It's just horrible. It just gets worse. So there's a feast of the Lord in Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. So out of concern for Benjamin... This concern for people that aren't them is going to rob the dignity and the liberty of a whole group of people that are not them. And this is how this happens. This is the ring of power. For my concern for everything, I'm going to do things that are horrendous and evil with all the power that I have, and other people need to just give up their liberty and dignity for this. Or for these young girls, they're at a feast celebrating God, and they're going to get abducted and taken into these guys' houses. Israel under Joshua were feasters, celebrators, joyful worshipers. They learned how to do this from God. These are the people following the Lord. And they're going to get attacked by other people that say they're following the Lord. This is how the history of the world has worked. So they hunt the innocent people all in the name of the God of Israel. Therefore, verse 20, they instructed the children of Benjamin saying, Go lie in wait in the vineyards and watch. And just when the daughters of Shiloh came out to perform their dances, then they came out from the vineyards, and every man caught a wife for himself from the daughters of Shiloh. You can imagine the screaming and the yelling. And then they go to the land of Benjamin. Then it shall be when their fathers or their brothers come to us to complain, we'll say to them, be kind to them for our sakes, because we did not take a wife for any of them in war. For it is not good that you have given the women to them at this time, making yourselves guilty of your oath. Oh my goodness. Was that a confusing sentence to you? Because they're in absolute lunacy at this point. They're nuts. Let's do this thing so we're not guilty of breaking our oath. Let's do this much greater evil, and then we're at least good. Okay, but you can't reason with people like this. They're crazy. And the children of Benjamin did so. They took enough wives for their number from those who danced, whom they caught, the slow ones. And then they went and returned to their inheritance, and they rebuilt the cities and dwelt in them. Uh, Linguistically, this line of logic, like try to go through it word by word, it makes no logical sense. They've completely lost their minds. And maybe that's where that phrase came from, is nonsensical gibberish in, in 20 through 23 is their rationale for all this horrible stuff they're doing. So here's the logic as far as I can break it down. Let's kidnap kidnap the Levite girls or the girls dedicated to God because we don't want to marry our own daughters to the Benjaminites. So let's do to others things that we wouldn't have done to ourselves. Shiloh families don't complain to us because we let you do this thing of evil. And then be nice because you need these daughters and sisters so you can repopulate your tribe. And we get to keep our oath. So that's 
as best as I can do, but again, I, I'm with you, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So chapter 17, an individual Micah makes up his own little religion. Chapter 18, the whole tribe of Dan adopts the religion and goes to a territory they shouldn't go. Chapter 19, we see the depths of evil for a whole city. And then in chapter 20, the whole tribe of Benjamin is complicit in that evil. And then in chapter 21, all of Israel is complicit in the evil of this time and this period. Verse 24, so the children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. They went out from there, every man to his inheritance. That's how Israel lived. And in those days, and we get the theme of the book. And in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So we bookend chapter 17, verse 6, is bookended here in, at the end of 21, verse 25. Those two verses capsulate this large five-chapter narrative. A um, few closing thoughts. It's really easy when we think we're doing things in the name of the Lord that we're doing good and that we're always right. That is the definition of doing what's right in our own eyes. We think we're good people. So if we've thought through it and we've made a decision, it must be a good decision. And it's, it is in the flesh that we do that. It's extremely hard to get somebody like Micah to see what's wrong with what they're doing. It is the most difficult thing in the world when somebody's going down the wrong path to convince them they're going down the wrong path. At the end of the day, I've determined, maybe some of those of you more veteran than me, you can't change anybody's mind. The only thing that changes people's minds is the Holy Spirit. All I can really do for people is pray for them. And maybe if they come to me as a brother in Christ, or, you know, and just say, hey, what do you think of this? But those are wise people that ask questions like that. Foolish people just bounce ahead with their plans. They never stop to ask for counsel or advice. So it's really hard to deal with an individual like Micah. It's even harder to deal with a whole tribe, a whole city, a whole nation going the wrong way. There's no fight in that. The only thing that turns that direction is the Lord God Almighty, who can deal with a nation just as easily as an individual. But boy, we can't even change, I can't even change my sister's mind about God. And I've been trying for 30 years, right? What makes us think we can change a city's mind or a nation? We can't. All we can do is humbly bow to the Lord God Almighty and tend to ourselves and seek purity on our own. That's all we can do. That is our weapon of war, is humbly submitting to the Lord God Almighty and putting what's right in our own eyes to death and letting us obey what God says. And in that, we might still have people attack us, just like those nice people in Jabath or the, the daughters of Shiloh, right? They just get the brunt of this. Why do they need a king? Because God's still watching. Second point, God's seeing all of this. It's recorded in his word. When we see injustice, God sees it too. And he doesn't ignore it. He doesn't just let it go. Uh, Jeremiah 16, 17, for my gaze takes in all of their ways. They're not concealed from me and their iniquity is not hidden from my sight. Those that do evil will pay for that evil. And that should be a comfort to those of us that see and experience or have to deal with people that do evil and horrible things. We don't have to have vengeance because vengeance belongs to God. And I wouldn't want to be on God's bad side. Don't think that a person, tribe, or nation, because they agree with themselves, is in agreement with God. God doesn't think that either. He may allow them for a season, 
But the opposite of, of doing that is to seek God, study his word, and commit to faithfully doing the disciplines God's asked us to work on. I obey your precepts and degrees, for all my ways are before you. Psalm 119, 168. And I read these last five chapters of Judges, and they drive me to verses like that. If the world's doing this, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to commit to it. This is all setting up what God is going to say to Solomon later on, that you are either all in or you're all out. And there isn't an in-between thing on that, all in. After that, if you obey all I command you and you walk in my ways and do what's right in my sight in order to keep my statutes and my commands as my servant David did, I'll be with you. I will build you a lasting dynasty just as I built for David. I will give you Israel, as God promises to Solomon. If you just walk in my ways, Solomon, just take care of Solomon. Remember he was worried about the responsibility of being a king? And that was God's promise to him. And then the entire letter of 2 Timothy is just this comfort and peace that Paul passes on to Timothy. In fact, this week, go read 2 Timothy and just take it in in light of what we had to study tonight. We studied a lot of ugly tonight. Go read something beautiful. I'm just going to read you a, little a couple little passages from 2 Timothy. You can go there and find it right now. Bookmark it so you can go read it later this week. Honestly, the whole book is a response to these chapters. In light of all this nastiness that's happening in the church, Timothy, do this. Be diligent and present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. Nevertheless, skipping forward, God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. You shouldn't like these chapters. There's something that should make us a little sick when we read these chapters. If that's the case, you're in good company. You're hanging out with the people God knows are his. He's put something in your heart that reacts viscerally to these last five chapters of Judges. 2 Timothy chapter 3 outlines the kind of sin that's going to be in the church in the last days. This is the weird part about 2 Timothy. It's not the Gentiles in the world that are the problem. Paul writes to Timothy and says, in the church, you're going to see all of these horrible things that he lists off. And then he says this. Oh, I didn't even put it in here. Shoot, bad me. It looks a lot like Israel looked before the king showed up. Not only is this world going to look a lot like Judges, the church is going to look a lot like the book of Judges before the Lord shows up, before the king shows up. So God needs to... Find those people that are going to just read his word and do what it says. It's amazing that God can do that, but God makes beauty out of ashes. The next book of the Bible is Ruth, right? That's what God does. God takes this kind of mess and raises up one of the matriarchs of Jesus's lineage in the book of Ruth. And it's a beautiful story. Even though all of Israel is a mess like this, these are the governing people, the fighting men. There's still this remnant of people that just love the Lord and simply live their lives as servants to God. And we're going to see that in the next, next week. The mix of all this evil, you get, the, you get these good people that stand out like a beacon of light. And that's the beautiful part about all this. We can read all this nasty and we can say, but God is good. And in the middle of it, God brings wonderful things out of this soil and he can turn those things. Why? Because he's God. And that's what he does. So, amen? amen? Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you for this night. Thank you for our just our hearts for the word and, and this group of brothers and sisters that, Lord, we come because we want to know what you have to say. And these are tough chapters to absorb, but we know you are a good God and a holy God. Uh, Lord, we know that we should read these chapters so that we can test our own hearts and we can rightly discern the truth about what's going on around us and the world that we're in. And Lord, I believe we're in the last days and I believe you're coming soon. Uh, Lord, if you're going to come tomorrow, we would be overjoyed because we want to put our hearts on you and we want to follow you. Uh, help everyone in this room to have their heart ready. And if they're not, Lord, help them make themselves right with you tonight um, and get themselves right with God. Lord, we want our hearts to pine for you because we, we react to evil in that way. And we see what's going on where people just do what's right in their own eyes. And Lord, we don't want that. We want to do what's right in your eyes because you're always watching and you see every one of our actions and deeds. There is nothing private, Lord. You know what we're doing and you see what we're doing and you're remembering what we're doing. And Lord, you know that our hearts are constantly driven to ourselves and our own flesh. So we need your redeeming blood and the sacrifice that you gave on the cross to cover that for us. Lord, we have to have you in our lives because we're not worthy to redeem ourselves. We are people without a king, so we need you to be our king. So Lord, we bow before you. We honor you. We lift you up. We take your word, Lord, and we just want to soak it in so that we can turn it to praise to you. I can't wait for next week, Lord. Help us to anticipate seeing the light of hope in the book of Ruth and the beauty of Ruth in light of this context and this horror story called Israel right now. So Lord, help us to just seek and love what is good and right and true. Help our hearts to be overjoyed uh, because you are good and you have come and, and the answer has been made plain. The light has been shown to the Gentiles. Uh, we love what you've done, the sacrifice and the cross. Even more importantly, that, that you rose from the dead and conquered death and you conquered all of this evil and you stepped on the head of Satan like you promised in Genesis 3.15. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.